0: welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Caroline Framke, and this week I'll be guest starring as the I, and I Think You're Interesting.
1: Finally, finally I get to be the you, and I Think You're Interesting. It's all I've wanted my whole life.
0: Honestly, ever since you started this podcast, that is what you've told me.
1: Um, (laughs) It really is. I've been waiting for this. I'm Todd Vanderwerf. I'm usually the I, now I'm the you. We're learning about pronouns together this week.
0: Hmm. Those are most of my questions. (laughs) To give a little bit more context on who I am, I also write for Vox.com. On the culture side, I have no and worked with Todd for I think going on seven years now. And all year you've been listening to him interview a whole host of fascinating people. So to cap it all off, I'm gonna interview him because I think he's interesting. And I still don't know as much about you as I would like to seven years in. (laughs)
1: We should say we have requested reader questions, so we have. I hope that they also have things they want to know about me or else this is going to be like a really dry hour. No,
0: it's good. I have a combination of questions from Twitter, from email, even from a couple of our co-workers. Um, Turns out a lot of people think you're interesting. So without further ado, I think we're just going to dive right in. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, From Michelle, you've said before that you grew up pretty removed from pop culture at large. How did you find your way into it? And do you think being somewhat sheltered from it has made you better able to critique it? So, sort of asking for the Todd Vandorf origin story here.
1: (laughs) This is true. I did. I started out and I grew up really fundamentalist Christian. For basically the first 10 years of my life, we didn't watch a lot of TV We had a few things we watched that were considered wholesome, like The Cosby Show. Hmm. Boy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, like, we'd go to Disney movies. We'd do stuff like that. But So, I wasn't completely cut off from it. But most of the stuff I consumed was Christian pop culture. Uh, Like a TV show called Gospel Bill, which was about a cowboy in the Old West who solved problems with Jesus. Oh, Um, excellent. Good show. He had a talking dog friend, too, which was great. Oh, that's all you Um, need to
0: have a good show. I've said that in every review I've ever written. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Absolutely. But when I got to be about 10, 11, 12, we switched churches to a – Baptist church. And that was a little less strict and like what you could consume. So, I started gradually letting more pop culture into my life. And really where it started was I watched a lot of Nick at Night. So, I have like this really (laughs) encyclopedic knowledge of 70s sitcoms where most people my age know like 80s stuff. I have like Mary Tyler Moore, All in the Family, some of those shows. Mm -hmm. And from there, it kind of branched out. Like I started watching... X-Files and Simpsons and things like that as I got to be a teenager. And I, I could tell, like, in some cases, my parents weren't sure about it, but they also respected, like, my pop culture autonomy as I got older, which I will always be grateful for. Um, that The second half of that is interesting because uh, Vox's head film critic, Alyssa Wilkinson, and myself kind of have similar backgrounds. And I always kind of wonder, like... There are certainly things that I am never going to get. Like, I am not the Star Wars fan that a lot of film critics my age are, hmm. nor am I like the—like, I have I watched The Goonies when I was 25 and was like, what is this? Um,
0: <laughs> I think so it like, doesn't go up beyond 13. No,
1: it doesn't. It doesn't. So, like, a lot of the stuff that people my age often hold as sacred texts. I just—I don't have that. I don't know if it's made me better at critiquing. But I think it's given me a different lens mm-hmm. to approach these questions through. And I think that that has been helpful. That sense of, like, when I first started really paying attention to media and how stories work, I was also entering that phase of your life where you start to realize that, oh, yes, people make these things. Right. So, like, it was easier for me to pull out, like, what a director did, what a, how a screenplay worked, things like that. So, in that sense, yes. But mostly, I think it's just, like... Uh, I, ha- I-, I have this different lens to apply to it than, say, somebody who grew up inundated in 80s pop culture.
0: Right. I mean, I think also we're recording this shortly after Star Wars The Last Jedi was released, and there is yeah. something very useful about the fact that you are not someone who's going to be very precious about the franchise and kind of look at it with a little bit more distance at the risk of yeah. getting angry people in my Twitter mentions.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the reasons that I was so taken by that film is it was the first one that made me feel like, made me feel like a Star Wars fan. You know, it made me feel like Star Wars was for me, even though I hadn't studied all the lore and all of the backstory and stuff. And I just really liked it. I really liked the the sense of the characters. I'm a big fan of Rey. Like, she's my favorite character and she mm. had like a good good arc. So I just, I did feel like that thing of, oh, this is this is what it's like to be a Star Wars fan. I'm so excited to join the club and then... <laughs> <laughs> Everything else happened.
0: That's really interesting because I feel like I did grow up with Star Wars sort of more in my childhood, sure. not obsessively, but my dad was a huge fan growing up. So I grew up with it and right. I really liked Last Jedi. I like it the more I think about it, um, but I definitely had more of that feeling with Force Awakens where it's was like, this is my generation of Star Wars. But it's probably oh, because sure. I was more familiar with it in the first place and it was kind of doing the same stuff but with different people.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. And and to me, I felt distanced from it because it was repeating a lot of those same right. beats. Whereas Last Jedi felt like it was subverting them, exactly. and that was more interesting to me as a man in his 30s. Right.
0: I mean, the whole movie's about, well, you got to burn it down and start from
1: scratch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Anyway, that was not a question about Star Wars, but
1: there we go. They all are, in but, a way.
0: I think so. This week, everything kind of is about Star Wars, even if it isn't. Um let's see. All right. Let's go on to another question. Um, this pair of questions I liked because I feel like um, selfishly it's something that I have thought a lot about too. Um, from Lauren, the first question is, what's the biggest misunderstanding about your job?
1: Okay. Hmm. Well, I th- I think the biggest misunderstanding is that we get paid a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I'm not complaining. I I make a comfortable living. My wife is also a journalist. Together. We certainly make enough to live on, but we are not, like, rolling in money. But, like, I think that the second second thing on the list, specifically for a critic, is that our job is to tell you whether something is good or bad. Mm -hmm. And to a degree, like, I get why that's out there. We put star ratings on stuff. (laughs) Um, We say, you know, this got four out of five stars or whatever. And, like, that is certainly that element of an audience consumer guide is important, but I always feel like... What we're doing is starting a conversation. Like you reviewed the miniseries Godless, and you weren't a huge fan of I it. I was not. And I I watched the first couple uh, a couple days ago, and I wasn't as I, I also wasn't into it. But I feel like there are a lot of people who just love it, and like the conversation between those of us who aren't as crazy about it and those who really love it, like that can be really interesting, as long as we remember that everybody's opinion is fundamentally okay, which. It's so easy to get lost on the internet. So I think that that is the biggest misconception, like that we are just saying whether it's good or bad. And if we think it's good and you think it's bad, then you're wrong somehow. We, we don't think you're wrong. Like right. we just, uh, we just you know, have this. We have maybe the experience to put into context why we think something is good or bad, but that doesn't make our fundamental opinion any wiser.
0: Right. Right. I mean at the end of the day criticism is about sharing an opinion which does seem mm-hmm. to get lost sometimes people being like
1: <laughs> you don't Well
0: say. this uh, this review seems really subjective and it's like yes
1: <laughs> yes it is Yeah the whole thing that went around kind of at the time of gamergate to bring angry people into my twitter mentions um, <laughs> Let's about do it. objective reviewing was so weird and then they you know they they, I saw like they pointed some of the Gamergate people pointed to what they thought were objective reviews and it was literally just like describing what happens right and cool that's fine but like real criticism yeah real criticism to me is like us talking about a thing and each coming to a greater understanding of our own feelings because of the conversation we've had
0: yeah I think I'd agree with that and the second part of her question is something I have thought about a lot. Um, has your job ruined entertainment for you? Can you watch a show just to watch a show or a movie just to watch a movie without analyzing every little thing in your head or thinking of a story you want to write?
1: <laughs> I get this one a lot. And I guess I would say I was always doing this. Mm. Like, I, one of the formative TV shows for me was Mystery Science Theater 3000, which came on the air— Like, right as I was beginning my breaking my great pop culture fast. And I spent a long time watching movies with family and friends and being very annoying and doing movie riffing because I thought that was like.
0: (laughs) What do you mean by movie you or thing? Watch
1: uh, the idea, it's what they did in Mystery Science Theater 3000, oh, right. where they made jokes about what was on screen. Mm-hmm. And like, I distinctly remember doing that with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I'm sure everybody I watched it with was just so annoyed. <laughs> this was on video. I wasn't doing it at the theater, but...
0: So you sort of became an in real life pop-up video. This is my reference.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I think that I've just always kind of been, I've always been interested in the craft of telling stories. hmm So, I was always thinking about, like, why didn't this work for me? Why did it work for somebody else? Like, obviously, I wasn't, like, sophisticated about those terms. It took a lot of, like, learning and studying to figure out what I thought. But I have always found it fun to think about why I like something. That's not to say that I don't have, especially I always usually have a TV show that I – try not to plumb too deeply like right now kind of uh crazy ex-girlfriend i think it's a great show i don't write about it because i like having it out there as a thing that i can just sort of enjoy another one is superstore which i have written about a little bit but which my wife and i just really like yeah on that level of like this is a tv show we enjoy watching together so i do try to do that but it's it's not like a switch i can flip on and off and uh, I guess I would say I was doing it before I was getting paid to do it, and um, I think that's often true of people in our line of work.
0: I'd agree with that, yeah. But I also have those shows that I, I don't want to write about because I which don't one, want which think Which one I'm
1: is doing. yours right now?
0: Oh, right now? Well, I mean, I my go-to answer was always Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and then I wrote about yeah. it a bunch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You've been writing about it a lot, yeah.
0: I know, because I keep saying, oh, it's really good, and you should watch it. Um The other one is probably uh, Survivor,
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, Um, which I
0: started watching, I think, when I was uh, like a year or so ago, and I was feeling really saturated with with shows, and I really just wanted to turn my brain off for a little bit, and Survivor did that for me. I had a roommate at the time who watched it, and sort of every week I would get slowly more and more sucked in, and then I ended up writing about that anyway. So I (laughs) agree, that's not really a switch you can turn off, because sometimes something will come up, and I'll be like, well, that's interesting, and it's worth teasing out.
1: Yeah, and I, I increasingly turn to YouTube for that because really? I don't like – for as much as I write for the website and for as much as pieces prompt ideas in my head, I doubt I'm going to write a piece about the beekeeping videos I watch <laughs> because I find beekeeping interesting. Like I don't I don't know that if I pitch that to our editor, Jen, she's going to be like, yes, I need 1,500 words on beekeeping now.
0: <laughs> I mean the problem is that if you have a good enough pitch, you can write about anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, definitely. I
0: would I would read those 1,500 words about beekeeping.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. I, I'll get on <laughs> it right now. Okay, good.
0: All right. I'm going to move along. And as long as we brought up um, Jen and our editor, who we both love, and as yes. I think you said, would walk through fire for her, she is.
1: <laughs> I would.
0: Yes. Um, definitely the best and most thorough editor I've ever had. Um,
1: yeah. I, a lot of people will write at me on Twitter and be like, I love or write me an email or whatever, and be like, I love Fox Culture content, and because I'm uh-huh. like the most public face of that, they just sort of assume I'm responsible for it. But no, it's all we have a pair of amazing editors, Jen Troleo and Je- Genevieve Koski, who both just make everything we do so much better.
0: Yep. Um, and this next question will help us praise them even more from Good X Bones on Twitter, and I hope that is referring to <laughs> the Fox <laughs> drama Bones. R. I. P. The <laughs> um, question is, what is a favorite note you've gotten from an editor?
1: Oh, boy. Yeah. I love when—so I wrote a piece about Hallmark Christmas movies recently. You did. And I forth straightforwardly described the plot of one, which is about <laughs> a man who gets a cat and then the cat makes friends with another cat, and that cat's owner is the woman of the man's dreams. And it's even crazier than that. I've boiled it down for the sake of time. But I straightforwardly described it, and Jen included after it in comments, LOL, what, I love it. <laughs> like, anytime I can describe the plot of something, and either Jen or Genevieve is, like, really thrown by how ludicrous it sounds, mm-hmm. I, I love, like, when they have that moment of, oh, really? Oh) <laughs>
0: I had that, I think, that note a lot with them um, when I was trying to write pieces about CBS's zoo. I get a lot of logical <laughs> questions about it, and I would have to just say there is no logic. I can't answer these questions. This is literally just what
1: happened. There's an earthquake sloth on Yes, that a show, sloth
0: that so. yawns causes earthquakes.
1: I will say that one of the questions I always appreciate is you know, about wanting to get more specifics because— mm-hmm especially when you're doing criticism, it's easy to forget that not everyone who's read the piece will have seen what you have seen. Right. And in some cases, like, it's impossible to be specific about, like, hmm, overriding ethos of, like, a certain network or a certain movie studio or something like that. But then, you know, you need to be, like, more explicit in what you're talking about. And I feel like that is a note I get from them a lot that is very helpful in terms of, like, saying... Our readers are not going to have the same experience you have, which is, I think, often hard for any journalist to remember. Like, once you have all the reporting in your head—actually, let me back up and give an example of this. I I wrote a piece last year uh, about—well, now it's 2018, so I wrote a piece in 2016 (laughs) about the musical Hamilton and just kind of how it intersected with my own personal life. And when working with my editor on that piece, her name's Eleanor Barkhorn. She's also a genius who works at Vox. We cut out a lot of stuff about some of the Hamilton backlash. And we left in like just sort of, sort of like a vestigial reference to it. But because that reference was still left in and it referred to a specific piece, a, a, a very interesting piece by Alex Nichols that I think I was a little unfair toward like there was, there was kind of a backlash to the piece because it was perceived as being a response to his piece when really it was just like me trying to describe what the backlash was and why I didn't agree with it. So like, I think that that was a situation where both of us were so familiar with other versions of the piece that had more elements of the backlash in there that like mm-hmm. we forgot our readers would not necessarily <laughs> jump there with us. And like, that to me is always helpful. Like everything I write about I have a very good chance, especially when I write about television, that people have never heard of it or seen it. And, like, it is incumbent upon me to provide examples for that. And, like, I think I have gotten better at it because I've worked with these smart editors that I have.
0: Yeah. Jen has gotten a lot of um very loving heat from us for not being on Twitter, but that's been so helpful for me as critics and journalists <laughs> yes. rely more and more on Twitter for her to just be like, we don't know what you're, t- what you're talking about. This doesn't exist yeah. outside
1: Twitter. Exactly. Twitter memes, things that are really evident to those of us who are very online to steal yes. a phrase. Like, it is so helpful to remember that, like, my sister— who doesn't have a social media presence outside of a a rarely used Facebook account, but wants to read about this stuff, like, she is not going to know what I'm talking about when I describe The Last Jedi Backlash unless I, like, really describe what The Last Jedi Backlash is. And, like, I think Vox as a whole, I think that's why it's a useful site, because not everybody knows everything. And uh, if you think you do, like, you don't. Like, that, that's a lesson I learned the hard way too much, so.
0: Right. I feel like a really good editor will find a way to make it so that you are being clear to people who don't necessarily know what you're talking about, but not so bland that the people who already do won't get lost, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, and that's the really interesting road to walk. Another piece I worked on a lot that published in 2017, which I've been working on for five years, uh, was about... Off and on. I wasn't, like, doing it straight through for five years. But it was about multi-camera sitcoms, which are sitcoms filmed in front of a live studio audience. And Jen was invaluable in finding a way to make that walk the line between having enough detail for people who didn't know what the term meant, but also having enough new stuff for people who did— and we're going to be interested in, like, the ins and outs of how it was produced. Um, I know you you had a similar thing with when you wrote that great piece about uh, going through the production of an episode of The Americans. Yes.
0: Because, yes, um, one thing I really wanted to make sure of is that it wouldn't just be for fans of The Americans. Like, as I'm sure that you didn't want your multicam sitcom piece to be just for people who already knew what that meant.
1: Well, and, was, yeah, I mostly wrote it just for me. Oh, so. Perfect.
0: Well, An audience of one. Yeah. High marks. Five V's. <laughs> um, yes, because I think for pieces like that, it's really um, the way I know I've succeeded is if people who already know what I'm talking about are into it, and the people who don't find a way to get into it. Um, yeah, I did that yeah, absolutely. With, I think I wrote about RuPaul's Drag Race, um, appealing to teenagers, and I was yeah. like, if this only appeals to the people who already watch rupaul's drag race no one is reading this piece maybe 12 people
1: Um, yeah yeah and it's it's easier to fall into that trap of with culture writing where like oh i'm only writing for the fans because and this is kind of unfair but we're seeing like the consequences of it play out across the industry like there's this perception that culture writing is like less important within a lot of the industry the industry being journalism the industry being journalism yeah Uh, that I am sad to see happen because culture writing, like, tells us who we think we are. It Mm -hmm. tells us where we're going. It tells us, like, how we think about where we've been. Like, I think that's so important at this moment in time. And uh, I am an evangelist for great culture writing.
0: Yeah, the slogan that you gave to Vox Culture and that has propelled us forward ever since is that pop culture is America's subconscious. Yeah. And
1: I really believe that. I feel like you don't always need to open the door at the back of it that says, uh, do not open. But sometimes (laughs) you do and you need to like see the swirling chaos that underlies all of it. And uh, I I think that that is an interesting way to think about it. Like pop culture is the way human beings express their subconscious, both at a personal and a national level.
0: That's actually a really good segue into the next question. Um, I know, from Marshall. And again, cool. um, just to be clear, I don't think we said this up top, Todd did not get these questions in advance.
1: Um, I did not.
0: So this is fun for me, maybe a little less fun for Todd, but probably still fun.
1: Anyway. Somebody tweeted a couple of them at me. I know, but... We'll, we'll, we'll see if they come out. <laughs> you're a good boy. You didn't look at them. I did um,
0: So from Marshall, what do you think are some of the biggest deficiencies or blind spots in writing about culture today?
1: Oh, boy. mm mm-hmm. um, I think that... We are in an era where we talk a lot about how culture can be viewed through social and political lenses. And I think that's useful because the default view of a lot of culture writing for almost all of my life has been white man, usually a straight white man, who like has thoughts about things. And a lot of them are great writers. Like I think Roger Ebert is a terrific writer but if he ever talked about like a woman he found attractive on screen oh boy um, <laughs> like go and find those reviews there they're they're a little terrifying mm-hmm. and like if, uh, he is a he's a writer that i idolize and love but he had that blind spot so i think that we have it's important that we're having this conversation what i think has been a little bit lost from a lot of this writing is the idea that a work can have politics or social implications you disagree with and still be of value. Mm -hmm. Like, I always talk about the show 24, which to me was like a fascistic defense of the United States government being able to do whatever it needed to to stop terrorism. But also, this like really endlessly compelling show about – what happens when you make that your national ethos? Like, what happens when you decide you have no moral code except stay safe at all costs? And of course, obviously, technically, it was beautifully produced. Like, everything about it was hugely influential. Uh, it was probably the best action movie. I'm putting air quotes around that of its era. Kiefer Sutherland gives one of the great TV performances of that era. Like, it is a show that I could not disagree with the politics of more wholeheartedly that I nevertheless would count as, like, one of my favorite shows ever. And I think that we've gotten kind of lost in this place where there's this weird divide between people who... uh, It especially, like, it plays out... You see people who primarily write about, like, the craft of film or the craft of television sort of snobbishly write off the people who primarily write about social or political messages. And, like, they're best when they're wedded together. Like talking about Get Out in terms of its social and political messages is important, but those social and political messages come across because the filmmaking craft is so excellent. Like, I think that we need to find a way to wed the two together, and I think we're figuring out how to do that. Like, it's it's certainly better now than it was, like, when I started at Vox, where there was this very stark divide between the two, but I definitely feel like both sides could learn from the other in a way, even more, in a way that would help more criticism. But if we're just like talking about blind spots in general, I think there is too much of a blind spot when it comes to video games right now. Like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there that I certainly don't have time to pay attention to. and I feel like there is there that the games industry, as people who grew up on video games increasingly infiltrate film and TV, like, is taking over how we tell stories Mm -hmm. and the two are cross-pollinating in ways that are really interesting that I just often don't have time to dig into as much as I should and I'm really looking for that writer who knows a lot about games and a lot about TV or a lot about games and a lot about movies and like can write about both of them in a way that expresses how the craft of video games is influencing the craft of everything else
0: no that's that's really I had not thought about it quite like that but I think you're totally right and I I can't remember the last time I played a video game because all I do is watch television.
1: I play them on my phone a lot.
0: <laughs> What's so, your favorite phone game right now? Just As long as we're interviewing you.
1: Every night I play a game called, oh, this is embarrassing. I play a game called AB Pop, which is Angry Birds. Uh, it's a, it's a <laughs> bubble shooter where you match three bubbles of the same color. I have like real affection for the Angry Birds characters. I <laughs> do don't know you? why. I just have like, I, I just love them. The Angry Birds or the them.
0: Pigs are both?
1: Mostly the birds, okay. But I do feel like a little bad that the pigs haven't gotten their own like, you know, like in the cereal commercials from the eighties, uh, <laughs> like Fred and Barney would be like fighting over the over the cereal, and like Barney Rubble would like get his own cereal or something like. There would be the spinoff about the bad guy. I'm sad the pigs have not gotten nearly as much <laughs> attention in that regard. So I feel bad for them. But uh, as as to like actual games, I love a game called Mini Metro which is where you draw subway lines. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find that so addictive. And then my wife and I play a lot of uh, board games against each other on our phones because it's easier than actually setting a board game up.
0: That's true. The cleanup is much easier on a phone.
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. I was going to say this is a layup, but you know, I don't think it is. Um, So you recently came out with your list of the top TV shows of the year. Right. Um, And you did something I really liked, which is that you made it I think you pitched this sort of as a joke and then became more convinced by it. It's So you pit, you wrote an 18-way tie yes, for best TV show of the year and kind of made the case for each one as the best TV show of the year. This yes. is actually not the question, but I want to ask you a little bit about why you decided to do that, and then we'll go to this question.
1: I just felt like this was the first year. So every year since I've started doing this, I have been strongly like, that was my favorite show as soon as I see it. And this year I had that happen five or six times. I had Mm -hmm. it first happen with Leftovers, but then it happened with The Good Place. It happened with Twin Peaks. It happened with so many of these other shows. And I was like, wait, maybe this year is just weird and different because there are all these shows I absolutely love. What could I do in terms of like, playing that up. And at first it was going to be a t- like a 10-way tie and then there was going to be like another 11 on the next tier and I was like no. No, we do things in 18s at Vox. We count in base 18. So, I'm going to do the 18 best shows and I'm going to say they're all the best shows. And like if you forced me to, I would probably rank them and I have for various Uh, polls. So if you go and look at like my Uproxx critics poll ballot, like you'll see my official top 10, but I love all those shows about equally. And especially in a year when I felt like there was a lot of good TV, but not a lot of great TV. I wanted to honor the stuff that really did rise above.
0: Well, then you may not like that someone on Twitter, and I'm so sorry I got lost in my mentions, um, wanted me to force you to pick your top five.
1: Okay. Um, well I'll tell you what it. I what I told I'll tell you what I told Up Rocks. I think this is pretty accurate. Uh, the Leftovers is the show I thought the most about this mm-hmm. year. So it's probably number one. Better Things is a show. I hesitate to recommend it now because it has in the involvement of Louis CK, who is he admitted to masturbating in front of women and is not a very good person and is is like No longer involved with that show, but he did season two, which is the season I loved. But it's Pamela Adlon's show, is my feeling. She's the star, the director. She's written most of the episodes. So, like, I feel like her voice is so paramount to that show that I don't want to punish it because, you know, she had a friend who did bad things. Mm -hmm. Um, My number three is probably Halt and Catch Fire, my beloved Mm. Halt and Catch Fire, which just, like— that it is not on the air anymore hurts my heart a little bit. That you have not yet watched it I'm so when I know sorry. you would love it, Caroline. I'm also so sorry. Also hurts my heart a little bit. It's uh,
0: it's my it's my number one pop culture regret in 2017. I'll be honest. Mackenzie right, Davis as right. some hacker disruptor is everything I could ever want. So
1: I will For do it. For A long time I thought about just making the good place my number one, but. Mm-hmm. I ultimately decided it's a better number 4. Like I have fair, like when I prepare a top 10 list, I have very strange like ideas of what belongs where. Like it's I'm less ranking things against each other than I am like trying to make a holistic statement about what I valued this year in television. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm basically like doing a window display for the giant department store that is my television <laughs> opinions. Um and number 5 was Twin Peaks, which I thought was brilliant. And I get why some people don't like it, which is why it's a little further down, but for me it just it was the one show that made sense of 2017 because it was all weird with strange dark evil constantly percolating up but also like people really trying to take care of each other and it it was more timely than I think anybody thought it would ever be.
0: That's a good argument for it because we've talked about this. I did not watch the original Twin Peaks and I didn't watch the revival, but um, for me, the discussion around it felt so impenetrable that I yeah. couldn't really engage with it. So I I was actually going to maybe ask you to talk a little bit about why this – revival is the right word for this one, right? Um, why this yeah, one – Yeah,
1: revival. It's, it's technically season three, but it's like a different show in a lot of ways. Right. Like, it certainly has elements of the original, and if you are a super fan, you will appreciate – Certain Easter eggs, right. but, but I think it's also, it's it also came that, like, from
0: ABC to Showtime, where he had yeah, no restrictions yeah. at all.
1: Exactly, I think it's telling that Kyle MacLachlan, throughout most of this miniseries, plays completely different characters from the <laughs> one that he did on Twin Peaks. Like, it is clearly engaged with the question of nostalgia and the poisonousness of nostalgia in a way that in a way that revivals almost never are, and. I was really struck by that. I was really struck by the way it told stories in a very different way from anything else on television, but also told them in a very TV way. Like, I felt strongly that the episodes were episodes. They had a distinct structure. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them ended with a musical performance. Almost all of them (laughs) had certain themes and elements that, like rose throughout the hour. Like, it was an episodic show to the degree that you can pull out an episode and put it on the best episodes of the year list, which we did, ultimately. Um, I think that the conversation around Twin Peaks really frustrates me because there is this idea that Twin Peaks is far and away the best thing TV has ever done, and I don't think that's true, but I think that that sort of also misses what's valuable about valuable about it, which is the ways that Twin Peaks changed tv but also that tv has changed twin peaks and like i think that following that conversation is interesting and i get really frustrated by uh the way that it gets turned into the holy grail by certain fans Mm -hmm. which i get because it it inspires those passionate feelings in me too but i hate the way that that becomes like a deterrent to people who would otherwise probably really like it
0: yeah we were talking a little bit earlier today even about um How more and more, I mean, this has always been sort of the case, like you were talking even just earlier about how Star Wars was something that you didn't feel like you were in the club necessarily. Um, But more and more, it feels like if you're not in the club, so to speak, from the beginning, it's impossible to catch up. There's so much else happening. You have to be in it. Or you're going to miss out on some big cultural moment conversation like Game of Thrones. You got to be in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For a long time, I had as my pinned tweet on Twitter... Uh, if you just start watching the show you want to watch, you'll you can f- catch up on Wikipedia and figure it out. And people got so mad about that; <laughs> people did not like hearing that. I firmly believe that television, like yes, you can be a completist about it. I feel happy that I watched the first season of *Halt and Catch Fire*, which was a little hit and miss because it made me aware I was really going on a wall and to watch season two. But like for the people who struggle to get through season 1 and but still want to be caught up on that show just skip to season 2 like <laughs> you'll figure it out you're smart you're you know how to use the internet like i i i'm really frustrated by the idea that you can only understand a show if you've watched all of it like i think you understand it in a different way but somebody who drops in on one episode is also going to have valuable insights. Like the first episode of Buffy the Vampire. I knew Slam, I was going to say this shows. if you
0: didn't say this.
1: Yeah. The first one I ever watched was the one where Angel goes evil. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I want to know what's going on. And like, I'm so glad that I did that. I eventually caught up on season one and I didn't like it very much. If mm-hmm. I started from season one, I would have bailed.
0: Right. And the first episode of Buffy your wife saw was, was one of the body. The, one of the mo- yeah. like, possibly the most atypical episode they ever did.
1: Yes. It's basically a small art film without music about the weight of death. And she loved it. And then of course she was like, I want to keep watching. And like she kept watching. She started watching there and eventually went and filled in like five seasons of backstory. And like, yeah, like I think that television is made to be consumed in discrete chunks. And mm-hmm. the more that we forget that, the worse off the medium will be.
0: And I mean, that's happening more and more now because of streaming and really—I mean, I can't—we can't can't put it all at streaming's feet, but there is something to the fact that so many seasons of things, especially that we're reviewing, are being released all at once. Yeah. So when we review something, we watch all of it.
1: Yeah. And when you're not thinking about it as a series of episodes that people are going to have to watch week to week— Right. —it really falls apart. (laughs) Like— The lesson that Netflix learned from Breaking Bad was a lot of people want to watch Breaking Bad, but what they should have learned was that the reason they wanted to watch is it because it's written in such a way that each episode tells a distinct story, and those stories hook together in a big puzzle. Mm-hmm. And like I watch a show like Ozark, which is perfectly fine, but also really drags. I'm like, why can't we just tell the story? That you're setting up and like the story that emerges in the last 15 minutes of that first season. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah, I forget whether it was Netflix or Amazon. One of them has talked about how they're looking at season, like first seasons, like they are a first episode stretched over a season. Like the first season yes. is the pilot. Yes. I hate this.
1: I hate this. Yeah, I I get why it's happening. But also, I look at the success something like The Crown has had, which is pretty episodic. Mm-hmm. yes. And I hope that Netflix learns from that. And certainly Netflix does a lot of different things. Like they do things like One Day at a Time, which is very episodic. They do things Mm -hmm. like Black Mirror, which is completely episodic. So they are at least engaging with it. But I do feel like their serialized dramas are often very, very dull.
0: And just long. I I mean, I'm a proponent of nothing should be longer than half an hour. That's just in general.
1: I know. You feel like all things should be like five minutes. I understand I just
0: think they should be short. (laughs) I'm a millennial. What can I say? (laughs) <laughs> this from Andrew. This is our coworker okay. Andrew. So, please uh, okay. know that this was submitted in good faith. Um, okay. He said, I think it would be fun if you forced Todd to pick his favorite show of all time.
1: Ah, uh, yes. And this is not... Favorite
0: question. does not equal best, which I think is
1: important to say. Okay. Well, my fa- then my favorite show of all time is, is The Simpsons. All right. Like, I have watched episodes of that so many times. And specifically... Obviously, the first eight seasons are the best, and there are many terrible episodes after those first eight seasons, but there are also many really good episodes after those first eight seasons. The average is higher than you'd think for a show that's going to run 30 years and probably longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But those first eight seasons, every time there is a Every Simpsons Ever marathon on uh, FXX, the channel that has the rights to it, that's all I watch. Mm -hmm. I watch that for days on end. And like... There's so many bits from that that I will just quote or just work into conversation. Like no show has brought me more joy than that show, and I will probably be watching it until the day I die. And I, <laughs> I like that, you know, I like that that it's out there and that it exists.
0: By any measure, having eight great seasons,
1: yes, that's enough. And that's the thing. Like I always have felt like when I was growing up. The idea was that the Mary Tyler Moore show was the best show of all time. And mm-hmm. I think Mary Tyler Moore show is, is one of the best shows of all time. I love that show. And the idea was it had seven great seasons. It survived cast departures. It survived all this stuff. And it was good throughout. And it's like 150-some really great or at least solid episodes of television. And I feel like The Simpsons did one better. So mm-hmm. go The Simpsons.
0: All right. Well, it did sound like you were thinking about this as a best question. Should I – should I ask that? Mm, I,
1: right. I I would I, <laughs> I would okay. make I would make a real argument for the Simpsons, but the answer I have always given because it infuriates me when this show <laughs> is not considered alongside its HBO brethren is Deadwood, which I think mm-hmm. is one of the most poetic, one of the most thoughtful, one of the most humane and intelligent works of fiction in any medium. Like, the characters on that show, the ideas on that show, the way that it is empathetic to everybody within its universe Mm. just blows me away. And yes, it ended after three seasons and, like, before it was supposed to end, but let's be honest, how many shows have run way too long, you know? So, (laughs) so many. The fact that it had three great seasons of television and they're all capital G great, like, to me... There's nothing like it. Yeah. Let's see. That was a great answer. I do what I can. (laughs) Okay. Let's see.
0: From Sam. Is there a niche in television that you currently think is being unoccupied that you think TV studios are really missing out on, leaving unfulfilled?
1: The first thing I thought of was variety shows. but. I don't really like variety shows. (laughs) And to be honest, they've mostly been replaced by reality. Like The Voice, American Idol, shows like that, they're just variety shows. So I don't know what I'm thinking. Um, I feel like there's probably a space in primetime television for a really strong sketch comedy that Mm -hmm. is just not filled right now. Certainly there are shows that uh, get close or shows that are kind of on niche outlets. But I feel like if you put on a really great kind of like Rowan and Martin's laughing which is this late 60s uh, artifact that is not very funny to our modern eyes but at the time was like really incisive and cutting about basically the failures of American politics like, like if you put something like that on NBC like it would do really really well um I used to always say family dramas for this, but This Is Us has has taken off. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, nobody's copying This Is Us, which is really strange. It's to
0: really me. interesting, like, actually.
1: Yeah. It feels like everybody's still trying to make cop dramas. But I do think like we've had uh The Walking Dead, which was a Blockbuster horror hit. We've had Game of Thrones, which was a blockbuster fantasy hit. I think there's room for a blockbuster sci-fi hit on that level. Like Westworld maybe will hit it, but it feels like we haven't quite gotten there yet. It'll probably be based on a book or a comic book or something. I look forward to it because science fiction is my favorite genre, and I feel like it is not particularly well represented on television right now. So mm-hmm. maybe that's my answer.
0: Yeah, that came up when um the the big quote from Amazon now is that they're looking for, quote, the next Game of Thrones. And yeah. they, they've they greenlit this Lord of the Rings prequel series seemingly in pursuit of that. And you— Ugh. right. Um, so um we've kind- of, we kind of talked a little bit about how that seems ill advised, um, yeah,
1: yeah. The thing about the next big show is you never know mm-hmm. what it, like it's not gonna look like the last big show, like the show before right. Game of Thrones was Breaking Bad. Those two shows could not be less different, you know, more different, like more different, rather, I'm sorry uh, uh, <laughs> but you are forgetting about how Breaking Bad had that dragon in the final season, like, you know, that I was did weird.
0: forget that. <laughs>
1: Um, But, like, then you look at Breaking Bad and Mad Men was the show before that. And Lost was the show before Mad Men. Like, there are connective tissues between some of these shows. Like, you can see the tissue between Lost and Game of Thrones. But Mm -hmm. it's always this, like, very different thing. So, like, the next show, unless it's just the news, which is this new argument I'm advancing, (laughs) that the TV show we're all obsessed with is the news – Um, and I think it's going to be like a wildly different thing from Game of Thrones. Like maybe it is one of the many, this is us clones that will hopefully arrive. Fingers crossed.
0: I mean, yeah, this has gone back forever. Like after friends became huge, everyone was trying to do hangout sitcoms, not realizing that that had so much to do with the casting as much as anything else. You can't.
1: Yeah. And the show that replaced, the show that replaced friends is like the, the obsession show was the X-Files. Like, you know, so.
0: Though I would like to see the friends solve
1: X-Files. Oh, that would be great. Who'd be good? I would though? love. I'd love to see that. Yes,
0: Monica would solve some X Files. <laughs> Am I using that correctly?
1: <laughs> I feel like yes. Okay. I feel like that's exactly right. Okay, great, perfect.
0: All right, these next couple of questions are kind of interesting. They're a little bit more specific, um, and I'm wondering if they maybe go together. Um, okay, Matthew is wondering, and this actually has a very um, this has a pretty concrete answer. Um, why doesn't American TV embrace shorter seasons like British TV? Um, I know part of the answer to that is that British TV often has one writer for a season. Yes. But he wants to know a little bit more about why doesn't American TV do that more often? Should it do that more often? Um we mentioned a little earlier that some shows should just end after four seasons, four perfect yeah. seasons.
1: <laughs> Well, the thing about British TV is that a lot of it, not all of it, like and certainly less of it than like when I was growing up and first learning about this, but a lot of it is state-sponsored, meaning taxpayer dollars pay for the BBC license, which pays for all this other stuff, basically. That's a very oversimplified version of it, but you get the gist right. American TV is built to turn a profit for advertisers. And no matter how far away we get from that model with things like Netflix, which is completely subscriber, Uh, subscriber and venture capital supported. Like, we still have this idea of, like, we have to make a lot of episodes. It's sort of ingrained in how we've made television. Mm -hmm. Now... There are also things about this where American television is paid on a per-episode fee. So if you are a writer who works on a six-episode TV series and that is the only show you work on because most of these shows have contracts where it's the only show you can work on, you are only getting paid for six episodes of work. So you are not making as much money as if you worked on a 22-episode show. So the lucrative jobs are the ones that are on larger episode orders. And until they kind of figure out a way out of that thicket, which this year's WGA, well 2017's near WGA strike was a lot about these issues like how do you build a comfortable middle class existence when you are only getting paid for six episodes of work and then like the rest of the year you're just sitting around Right. so there is a real structural thing built into the US system that makes it very hard to do shorter seasons unless mm-hmm. they are indeed all written by one person that said I often feel like longer seasons are better Really? I think like, I feel like the ideal length uh, for a TV season is 13 episodes. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've every season I've watched of a show like Better Call Saul, which does 10 episodes as opposed to Breaking Bad used to do 13. I can feel around the edges, the other stories I'd love to see with these characters They'd get with three more episodes. Mm-hmm. You burn out a lot more quickly, obviously, but I think a lot about like The Good Wife, which had a really tight serialized story, but also could break that up with some really great standalone stories just every once in a while if they had one like you can't do that in an 8 episode run and like that's one of the things i love about tv is the idea that like you might get any number of stories with these characters and they could all take drastically different formats
0: right i mean that's and that's coming up a lot with um anthology shows, not the same thing, yes. but there is sort of something interesting in using the same format, finding different characters, finding different stories within the same format. We're getting American Crime Story in January with um, Versace. Is that January or yes. February? Um, sort of, I'm wondering how much more that's going to be happening.
1: I hope a lot more. I think it's an interesting format. And I should say that we are coming up on the top of the hour. So,
0: Oh, I know. Uh, so <laughs> part of um, when Todd and I first talked about this podcast is that I... Agreed to let the people ask him questions, but I also reserved the right to ask some of my own. Ooh. Uh, yes. Um, with something of a lightning round, but I recognize that maybe um, because we're both people who like to, <laughs> we're, we're both people, um, we're writers, that's what we do, um, you don't have to answer them all extremely quickly if you don't feel like it. You can tell me oh, why. I I know. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I have several questions that I'd like your answers on. Um, they're pretty simple. Okay. All right, here we go. All right. Lightning round. Um, we both knew each other at the AV Club, where we used to recap TV shows. And I'm wondering, which was your favorite show to recap?
1: Oh, boy. Mad Men. Uh, because it always offered something different, and it was always fun because you didn't get screeners, so you had to write it in a rush. Mm-hmm. And some of those some of those recaps are terrible, but I think <laughs> I had a pretty high batting average, and it was there was always a lot to chew on. I loved writing about it.
0: And first impressions are sometimes way more interesting than when you get too yeah. much time to think about something. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. And on the other side of that what was your least favorite.
1: Oh, boy. Uh, there was a show called The Good Guys that I wrote about the full whole 22-episode season of. It was a fun show. It was not a show that should have been recapped, and the commenters could tell I was disinterested <laughs> in doing it and just doing it for the paycheck because I was still freelancing then, so I got paid per piece. So mm-hmm. probably that one.
0: Yeah. There are definitely some comedies that at a certain point you're like, I can't, I'm just saying the same thing over and over again.
1: The Big Bang Theory was another one in that box. Did you
0: recap The Big Bang Theory?
1: I did for two whole seasons. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. What's your favorite TV death?
1: Oh, um, this is calling back to an earlier answer. Joyce on Buffy. Just a brilliant, beautiful moment. Beyond her, probably uh, Locke on Lost Mm -hmm. because that is – That show in a nutshell, he really believes so heavily in a thing that ultimately betrays him. Uh, Just beautiful storytelling on every level and a great performance by Terry O'Quinn.
0: What's your favorite animated sidekick?
1: (laughs) Does Millhouse count? No. Um, (laughs) I feel like it changes by the week, but the Belcher kids, they're not sidekicks, they're characters of their own, but the Belcher kids on Bob's Burgers Mm. are just terrific and they can slot into the role of sidekick in any given episode like that's such a bad answer no I it's love it. like <laughs> like they're not technically sidekicks if i had to pick like a real sidekick probably scooby-doo All right not gospel bill's dog it was it wasn't animated that was a man in a dog suit it was what? a little terrifying okay yeah, you I'm failed find this to mention
0: you. that that changes everything
1: <laughs> gospel bill was a real person he was a real person, and he had a real talking dog that was a man in a dog suit.
0: What was his outfit? What was his situation?
1: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> they wrote him out after a couple seasons, I think, because kids were like, wait, is this true? Like, are there talking dogs? They were like, Wait, no. they wrote the dog out? They wrote the dog out.
0: That sounds like the only reason for—all right. <laughs> I'm upset. <laughs> I got derailed. Okay, um, let's see. Um In the spirit of this podcast, what is the most surprising, I think, your interesting interview that you did this year?
1: I really loved the interview I did with Kelly Martin, Mm. who is an actress that I had a lot of affection for from childhood. But you never know, like, how forthcoming actors are going to be. She was so forthcoming. And she said such great, interesting things. And she had so many great stories. I was really worried that nobody was going to listen to that episode. And instead, it's been one of our best performing episodes. Like, I'm so glad people found it. I I think it's a great episode. And if you haven't listened to it and you're listening to this, you should go check it out. It's wonderful.
0: (laughs) Um, Selfishly, because I am not great at interviews, uh, what is an interview trick that you've learned that has made interviews better for you?
1: I stopped using notes. So that's not a good tip.
0: No, that's (laughs) interesting. Why?
1: I felt like they were making me too pre-programmed. Like mm-hmm. I liked having them there in case I needed to jump to another question and like I just didn't have anything coming to mind. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly had interviews on this podcast that we've had to edit out, whatever. But yeah, it's like we've had to edit out me completely forgetting my train of thought, basically. But <laughs> like for the most part, I feel like it makes it more conversational. And that's all you're doing is you're just having an interesting conversation with a person but I think that like in just a quick interview go-to is you can always 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 ask somebody about like their first job like if you run out of questions <laughs> that's like a place you can go that somebody will always have an interesting story about
0: that's great um yeah I feel like half of interviewing is just being able to listen enough that you can actually have a conversation and not just be like and yeah. here's my next question Anyway, here's my next question. (laughs) If you could choose a cinematic universe in which to live, which would it be?
1: Uh, Ah, yeah. This doesn't Um, have to be comics. No, that's fine. I I think probably I would live in the Hallmark Christmas movie cinematic (laughs) universe. I have never been less surprised. (laughs) They're surrounded by snow and all that. I actually, I'm. I have a great affection now for the Star Wars universe. I would live in that universe. It seems like there's all kinds of fun stuff going on there. Like I'd, I'd have a good time. Like, we'd uh, swash some buckles. It'd be good.
0: Perfect. I mean, I think Last Jedi did as good a job, better job, than any of the movies at being like there are regular <laughs> people who live here and aren't Jedi's or princesses yeah. and exist in the
1: world. Yeah. All I right. would almost certainly be a war profiteer.
0: <laughs> um. All right. Uh, I feel like last year there was this three-character meme that I really liked. Which three characters okay. do you most identify with? Did you do that? If if not, do it now.
1: Oh, I did not do that. Um, it's interesting. I've been talking about this a lot with my friends and my therapist. But <laughs> most of the characters I strongly identify with are women. Um, All right. I don't know what that is about. Like, uh, Just something about it. Angela Chase from My So-Called Life was somebody – I very strongly felt like, yeah, this is somebody I identify with their struggles and interests. George Bailey, the character from It's a Wonderful Life, uh, growing up in a small town, going to the big city, etc., etc., etc. And then I guess after that, boy, I might say Rory Gilmore from Gilmore Girls. She was so bookish and kind of nerdy. And I mean, if you've ever seen Alexis Bledel run in a role, she's a terrible (laughs) runner. I am also a terrible runner. So there we go.
0: Well, Todd, this has been excellent.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this, Caroline. (laughs) My pleasure. Let's do it again next year. Fantastic. (laughs) I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. That's me. My thanks to Caroline Framke for stepping in and talking to me this week. It was great fun having her here. Uh, But one of the things we didn't get to because we had a limited time frame is we didn't get to the part where I ask our guests some of the same questions every week. So we're going to do that right now, really quickly. Caroline has chosen them for my giant list of questions, and I am going to answer them. first one is, which writer have I learned the most from whom I've never met? I mentioned Roger Ebert earlier, and I feel like I learned a lot from him. But another thing about him is that I have emailed with him before, so I don't know if that counts. Like very early in my career, I sent him a couple of emails, and and we we exchanged uh, cordial uh, messages because I caught some mistakes in a review he wrote when I was working as a copy editor. So. If he doesn't count, and that's fine if he doesn't, probably F. Scott Fitzgerald, who died before I was born, so I couldn't have met him. Uh, The Great Gatsby was hugely influential to me and really influenced the way I write, which you can probably tell from reading literally anything I do, because it's all way too long and straining for poeticism it doesn't necessarily achieve. Caroline also wants to know tell the listeners the story of a disastrous pop culture outing, whether a bad movie date or a concert I took my friends to that they hated. Hmm. There's always, I mentioned this in the Griffin Newman episode, but maybe you didn't listen to that one. There's always the time I went to see Prince of Egypt and made out with my girlfriend while I was sitting next to my sister who was really disturbed by the idea that I was, I was making out next to her. But I think that probably the story that I have to tell is I went and saw the movie Titanic, now just 20 years old. On the day it opened, December 19th, 1997, I went and saw it with a girl I kind of had a crush on. And we saw the very first showing at 10 in the morning. And I tried to, you know, put my arm around her and it it was not, it was not great. You know, we, it was clear that neither, that neither of us was terribly into it. So she went and got some concessions. When she came back, we just like sat as far apart from each other as we possibly could while staying in our seats. And then after the movie was over, I asked her if she would help me buy a Christmas present for a completely different girl. So as you can tell, teenage Todd was smooth. And finally, Caroline asks, what am I looking forward to? In 2018, I'm looking forward to the end of The Americans. I'm looking forward so much to some of my favorite TV shows coming back. And I guess that the movie I'm most looking forward to would be... Oh, you know what? There's a movie that is written by Diablo Cody, starring Charlize Theron and Mackenzie Davis, two of my favorite actresses. It's directed by Jason Reitman. It's basically the same team that made the 2011 movie Young Adult, which I adore. I really hope it's good. Who knows? Maybe it'll be terrible, but I, I I really hope it's a good movie. I'm looking forward to it so much. And now let's start up the closing credits again. Why not? Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is from Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Production manager is Alex Ulrich, and our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and post production are thanks to P3 Post, and this week's episode was recorded in the P3 Post podcast studio. Uh, on my end, and Caroline was in the New York Vox Media podcast studio. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer in L.A. was Jay Brooks, and Miles Ewell was on the line in New York. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. Helps us get the word out. Helps us get great guests like me. I'm such a good guest. Uh, you can. Can email me at todd at vox.com if you have a thing you don't want to put in a review, though I read all the reviews. You can also email the podcast at ityi, it ye.podcast at vox.com and you can tweet at me at t-v-o-t-i, tvoti. We will be back next week with another figure from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting, but probably not as interesting as I think that I myself am interesting. And until then, I think Caroline should take over the show, don't you? Like, I feel like I should leave it to her in my will.